Welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that did make it. I'm Hilary B. Bissonnettes. Listeners, I'm beyond excited today to welcome probably one of my oldest like online writing friends. Uh, you may know him as a Hugo-winning fan writer uh, for A Dribble of Ink. Aiden Mower, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It Absolutely. has been a while, hasn't it? It's been a grip. It's, it's really been, been, it's been a minute. It's been a good minute. <laughs> it's been a good minute, but, uh, yeah. you know, you've been, you've been killing it since then, quietly building. Uh, and if uh, listeners, if you don't already follow in on Twitter, uh, you have your priorities out of whack. Uh, if you do follow Aiden on Twitter, you already uh, have probably seen that we're going to be talking today about fight magic items, the history of Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, and the rise of Japanese RPGs in the West, uh, which I'm just so pumped about this book. Thanks. I am too. I'm still not really sure how I convinced anybody <laughs> along the, you know, the, the, the path of many people I had to convince uh, to actually let me not just write the book, but, but publish it and publish it through a, you know, one of the big five or big yep. four, big two publishers, however many are left. Yeah. Uh, um, we're recording this in September by October. Who even knows? Who knows? Everybody's owned by Amazon at that point. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, but yes, it's like, I, it's a book that I've, you know, had inside me forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, since I was that little kid, right? And I was reading gaming magazines, uh, where I first learned about all the Japanese RPGs and those obsessions started. And, you know, I've collected experiences. And this is about kind of giving those back to the, uh, the you know, fandom of not just Japanese RPGs and Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, but like gamers and people who still love Japanese RPGs and video games or people who played them as a kid mm -hmm. and then fell out and, you know, as an adult, they're like, oh yeah, I remember those games. I love those. Um, yeah. And they want to just revisit those memories as well. And, and uh, I have a great agent, great editor, great publisher, great publishing team. And they all said, yeah, write that book and we'll, uh, we'll get it out to readers for you. And I, I did, and I have, and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I was, so stoked as soon as I saw your announcement and then I immediately was like hey that's coming out I don't have a podcast guest for that month I'm gonna call Aiden right away and be like hey book tour my place <laughs> yeah I was I was really excited to hear from you because I've enjoyed your podcast since you launched it um and oh, we tried to connect that. at the beginning um and it didn't work out and I've always kind of regretted that and I've always wanted that opportunity to join your guests because I, uh, I really love what you do here yeah thank you uh and yeah i was i was also like you know we had we had been in talks in the first season and then it just never never really panned out for a variety mm -hmm. of life reasons that yep. absolutely happen mm -hmm. but uh here we are now and uh here we get to celebrate our love of all things pixels and polygons mm -hmm. absolutely 
so you're going to be reading out of the uh, preface of this book. Is there anything yeah. we need to know uh, other than what we've just said uh, going into this? I don't think so. The The prelude um, breaks down like what the book is about, why I'm writing it, why I think you know, it's an important story to tell. Um, I think the the title of the book is pretty self-explanatory. It's uh, Fight Magic Items is the history of Japanese RPGs with a specific focus on how they sort of found and rose to popularity in the West mm -hmm. and then diminished a little and have sort of more recently been kind of finding a like a comeuppance uh, through like indie developers and younger mm -hmm. younger game creators who, you know, are our age and they grew up playing the original final fantasy games and now they're the ones making the new rpgs and how does that inform not just japanese rpgs but you know video games as a whole that have adopted stuff that japanese rpgs sort of uh created back in the day and so it's this yeah. kind of holistic look at the rise and and legacy of japanese rpgs in the west through the lens of like ja western fandom um Fantastic. but the prelude explains all of that so uh <laughs> So I think, uh, you know, I really wanted to put a lot of myself and my experiences into the book. And mm -hmm. um, one thing that I've seen from like early reviews and early feedback from readers is like, you know, I've had people say it, the book made them nostalgic for games they didn't even play or experiences mm -hmm. they weren't old enough to have. Or, you know, they were really into fighters and their friends were really into like fighters and beat em ups at the time. And, and this felt like going back and having like, you know, a an alternate version, an alternate history of their own life where their friends were into RPGs. Oh, yeah. Um, which was really gratifying to me. And, you know, someone else described it as, you know, just geeking out with a, you know, with a best friend about games that you love together. And that's the that's the thing that I really wanted to put into this book is that, like, I didn't want it to feel like, you know, just a, a bunch of Wikipedia articles, right? Yeah. I wanted to, I think the, the reason everybody, and certainly myself, is drawn to video games in general is just the emotions it evokes, right? The, the experiences sure. we have that we keep and bring with us through life and then share with others. And so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do that with this book and, and this um, prelude really kind of like sets that stage. It's like, here's the journey that I went on, but mm -hmm. I bet you went on as well. Maybe oh, not yeah. with these games, you know, maybe not even with Japanese RPGs, but with something in your life. And, and I want to share that feeling with you and make, make people walk away feeling, you know, nostalgic and yeah. um and and informed and like engaged and invigorated about the idea of like the merging of story and interactive storytelling and like video game pieces yeah and i mean that's really what i want uh, not necessarily specifically the video game part but that's what mm -hmm. i want out of any nonfiction book is like yeah to feel connected yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, this story, the prelude focuses mostly on my experiences, but uh, a big part of the book, uh, every chapter is like pulling forward the people that surround mm -hmm. the games. And so that's, you know, myself and other fans. So that's, you know, critics and reviewers like looking at the games at the time. Like I reference a lot of archival material, mm -hmm. uh, but also the creators themselves and trying as much as I can to pull the creators and their experiences and their, you know, their dreams and like, you know, what went right, what went wrong, uh, how they evolved and how games changed them. Like all of that I wanted to put into these chapters, you know, like explore the games through the people who enjoyed and created them. For um, sure. And I hope that, I hope people enjoy that. I think it'll, uh, I think it makes it, you know, for a fun read, an engaging read. And it leaves people feeling like, you know, even if they knew all the, 
you know the technical history of a game they they leave maybe understanding the game a little better because they understand the people who created it a little better yeah fantastic well i am ready when you are so this is the prelude of fight magic items it's called how i became a dragon master (laughs) as a kid in the 90s i fought goblins and demons i learned new magic spells and traded in old gear for shiny weapons raised rebellions traveled through time and rode a whale into space (laughs) i became the dragon master and the hero of light didn't we all Besides being a Dragon Master, I was an otherwise average Canadian teen. I'd regularly sequester in a dark bedroom with my friends, drenched in the phosphorus glow of a bulky tube TV, punk rock from The Offspring or No Effects drowning out the game's built-in soundtrack, Hmm. mutually entranced by the latest video game. We weren't obsessed with the latest first-person shooter or strategy game. These weren't Warcraft 2 LAN parties. We weren't playing Doom 2 deathmatches into the wee hours. We were obsessed with Final Fantasy VI and Xenogears. The creators of these Japanese role-playing games, Japanese RPGs or JRPGs, handed me upgraded armor and sharper swords, pitted me against those goblins and dragons, and deemed me Dragon Master. Like mm-hmm. Warcraft II fanatics, I'd haul my game console and my trusty computer monitor, an already ancient at the time Commodore 1702, to a friend's house, where we'd set up our tubes back-to-back to avoid spoilers, naturally, (laughs) and play these single-player games for hours. If you've got kids or a sibling, you're familiar with the term parallel play, where two young children will play within each other's vicinity without necessarily acknowledging each other. Gamers do this too. And those Mm -hmm. evenings with my friends have become one of my foundational memories. Our homework neglected, the bus rides to school, the following morning were filled with in-depth discussions of our experiences with the JRPG of the month. Have you reached that part with Eris yet? Hey, anybody got tips for the Black Dragon? Hey, dude, are you done with Xenogears yet? I really want to borrow it. <sighs> As creators of some of the most popular video game franchises of all time, in Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, Hironobu Sakaguchi and Yuji Horii are high on the list of visionaries to have left an immeasurable mark on the world. However, JRPGs, like theirs, weren't always popular, and the genre's rise to mega-popularity in the mid-90s, as well as their lasting influence on modern games and pop culture, was a long and hard-fought journey. This book is an exploration of how my experience wasn't unique, that the special coming together of Eastern and Western design philosophy, storytelling, history, and pop culture in Japanese RPGs is a shared experience among millions of gamers. Fight Magic Items is the story of how Japanese RPGs brought a genre to the masses and reached meteoric success thanks to some of the most brilliant and bold creators in gaming history. My first exposure to Japanese RPGs was during a visit to my friend's house. While I chased down Krang and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Follow the Foot Clan on my Nintendo Game Boy, he was moving a squat character around a large, multi-screen map on his in a game called Final Fantasy Legend 2. I knew Legend of Zelda, so the adventure game concept wasn't strange. And when he let me give it a go, the maps shattered into a double diamond pattern and were replaced with the static sprite of a cartoonish tiger and a menu (laughs) with two options, fight or run. I was unimpressed. Mm. Who wants to be navigating slow-paced menus when I can be slicing and dicing the Foot Clan with every button press? (laughs) Final Fantasy Legend 2, from controversial game designer Akitoshi Kawazu, is not the game I'd use to introduce the genre to anyone. 
especially a platformer-obsessed kid. It was full of opaque gameplay systems, including a complex monster evolution system that challenged genre newcomers to run before they even knew how to walk. Hmm. But at the time, Japanese RPGs were still finding their footing in North America. So there wasn't a lot of Japanese RPGs to choose from on handheld devices, especially the ones I had access to. Sure, it was cool, you could take a whole fantasy world on the go, but the moment-to-moment gameplay didn't fire off any endorphins. At least, not yet. It wasn't until a couple of years later, thanks to one of the most revered Japanese RPGs of all time, that I discovered the beauty of Japanese RPGs. And when the genre finally clicked with me, it became an obsession. I was the oldest of three brothers, and we were a lot growing up. My parents did what any tired parents would do. Hired the cool babysitter, armed with a cache of video games. We spent most nights playing Doom, but one time he brought something new and not at all like Doom's demon-infested fight for survival. Digitized organ music blared through TV speakers like a harbinger ushering in a logo with purple clouds and lightning. Final Fantasy III. That night, we explored the mines of Narsh, fled the Empire's soldiers, and traveled in a moving castle beneath vast deserts. The bright flash, when we stepped onto a glimmering save spot, filled me with an indescribable sense of safety that I hadn't mm. encountered in video games. The games I'd played before were focused on gameplay and conflict, always keeping the player on their toes with a new challenge leaping onto the screen. But this was a story, a mm. book. I could play. I was hooked. From that point forward, I kept tabs on all the Japanese RPGs I could find in the pages of Game Players, Electronic Gaming Monthly, and Nintendo Power. I longed for the releases that never made it out of Japan and lusted over the games I couldn't afford at Toys R Us. Hmm. And there was one game that stood above them all, convincing me Japanese RPGs were definitively my thing, and every bit as worthwhile as the massive fantasy novels I was contemporaneously falling in love with. That game was Chrono Trigger. I have vivid memories of reading and rereading previews and reviews in gaming magazines. I counted down the days until my birthday, months after its official release, when I knew I'd be able to go with my dad to Toys R Us for a copy of my very own. Mm. I can see myself walking back to the car with the game and the shrink wrap, finally mine, and reading the manual cover to cover on the long car ride home by the dim glow of passing streetlights. Where Final Fantasy III caused sparks in the gaming world in the mid-90s, Chrono Trigger fanned those flames into wildfire. At around the same time, I was also discovering J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and Terry Brooks's The Sword of Shannara, the trading game Magic the Gathering, and Akira Toriyama's legendary anime Dragon Ball Z. Hmm. What really caught my attention when I discovered Chrono Trigger in Final Fantasy VI was the way they combined fantasy tropes with science fiction, steampunk, and everything in between in a way that I wasn't finding in books, but that suited my tastes perfectly. (laughs) To my younger self, Chrono Trigger was a post-apocalyptic science fiction, a gothic vampire hunt, a tried-and-true medieval fantasy, and an over-the-top shounen anime all at once. (laughs) From 1995 on, I lived off epic fantasy novels and Japanese RPGs, immersed in these brilliant worlds that seemed so much more complex and exciting than the real life of a high schooler living in a small island community in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. My teenage years coincided with what many Japanese RPG fans consider the genre's golden age, from the mid-90s emergence of Final Fantasy on the Super NES to the absolute JRPG dominance of Sony's PlayStation 
into the early 2000s. It was a heady time to be a JRPG fan, with legendary game designers, writers, and artists working at the height of their careers. Without a lot of corporate interference, and at an absolutely dizzying pace. When Final Fantasy XV released in 2016, it had been seven years since the previous mainline release in the series, Final Fantasy XIII. However, during the 90s, fans expected, and received, new entries in the series on a yearly basis. From 1999 mm -hmm. to 2001, Final Fantasy VIII, IX, and X were all released a year apart, and the seven previous titles were released over the span of a decade. And that was just Final Fantasy. When he started to add all the other high-caliber Japanese RPGs during that period, like Game Arts, Grandia, Working Designs, Lunar, Silver Star Story Complete, and Namco's Tales of Destiny, mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. like drinking from a fire hydrant. Despite the rapid pace of releases and my meager wallet, I couldn't get enough. Some teenagers bonded over games to pick up basketball or late-night Dungeons and Dragons sessions. But for my group of friends, it was these Japanese RPGs that glued us together even as the combined gravity of high school social politics, dating, and the looming threat of adulthood tried to tear us apart. Uh, yeah, dude. I heard you could revive her if you max out all your materia before facing Sephiroth. Hey, did, did you equip the dragon armor before the battle started? I just got to disc two. I think I'm almost done. Twenty years later, we still regularly connect over online video games to shoot the breeze from our different corners of the country. Like the PC RPGs that inspired them, Japanese RPGs were, and still are, designed to be a predominantly singular experience, but they proved to be so much more than that, not just for my friend group, but for countless gamers over the years. Our planet is overwhelmingly large, and yet the art we create makes it feel like the most tight-knit of communities sometimes. My friends and I couldn't have been less Japanese if we tried, but something about their cultural approach to video games, along with film and TV, just hit us in the right place at the right time. Mm. Before we knew it, fantastical Japanese coming-of-age stories became as foundational to our youth as Tolkien, pick-up basketball, and punk rock. Oh, that uh, that is... That takes me back in so many ways, even though, uh, like, we're separated in age by a decade-ish. Uh, it is still, like, yeah, this is this speaks to me and, and absolutely brings me back to my own, uh, you know, middle school and high school years. Um, that said, I know that not everybody who's listening to this show is maybe familiar with some of the uh, just basic terminology concepts and tropes behind JRPGs. So uh, you have a little bit of an explainer in your book. Do you want to uh, give us a reading out of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this book is meant for, you know, I tried to write it in an approachable way. So people, even if they didn't have like a ton of experience or, or present experience with Japanese RPGs could like dive in, but you're right. Some people are coming because they love video games or, you know, they just like books on cultural history. Mm -hmm. And so I do have an explainer that breaks down how I determine what a JRPG is. I'm a big bucket guy. I like to, uh, you know, I don't like granular, uh, you know, categorization of things and trying to label things as, as this or not this and not that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think I have a pretty good, pretty good breakdown of what a Japanese RPG is. And so I'll, uh, I'll read from the, the book uh, Fantastic. and uh, let you know. So, what 
is a JRPG. Put simply, a Japanese RPG is a role-playing game from Japan. What separates them from their Western counterparts, and where did their histories diverge? Now that requires a more complex answer. Hmm. One of the things I find most remarkable about JRPGs, perhaps what I consider their most definable attribute, is how they're born of Western roots, but shaped by Japanese myth, themes, motifs, and storytelling modes that, at the time, couldn't be found in Western media. Hmm. A relatively new medium, video games are continuously evolving and redefining their boundaries and doing so at an astonishing pace. Because of video games' fluid nature, it's necessary to explore the video game genres adjacent to JRPGs, adventure games, visual novels, and other games that many fans might not consider JRPGs, but undeniably contain elements that helped shape the genre. Mm -hmm. All games are in conversation with one another on one level or another. It's impossible to look at modern JRPGs like Final Fantasy XV and not see the influence of open-world Western RPGs like Bethesda's The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. Though all RPGs trace their roots back to Dungeons & Dragons, the way they execute on the RPG concept varies widely. Western RPGs generally hew closer to the tabletop RPG formula with non-linear adventures that emphasize player choice, whereas mm -hmm. JRPGs more commonly focus on linear narrative experiences, almost like a novel. This isn't to say that Japanese RPGs are strictly linear, as the genre frequently explores different structures, design ideologies, and experimental approaches to RPGs, but I think it's a decent shorthand to explain the structural divergence between the subgenres. The core gameplay loop for a JRPG goes something like this. A young, plucky hero, sometimes mute, sometimes verbose, almost always naive, leaves their home in pursuit of, or fleeing from, an evil villain. They assemble an eccentric party of fellow adventurers, each filling a role analogous to early Dungeons & Dragons classes as they traipse from town to town, pillaging dungeons and powering up by battling monsters, wild animals, and never-do-wells along the way. They eventually defeat the villain during a climactic final battle and consequently save the world. This is reductive, of course, but it's a popular and reliable framework that has formed the foundation for so many games in the genre from its 8-bit beginnings to today. Nice. Yeah, that's... Uh, I, I don't think if I had spent as long researching and thinking about this book as you have that I could have put that better. Thanks. I, I worked on that one a lot. Like that was, yeah. uh, you know, like that was important. It's, it's in the intro and I, I, you know, I went through some revisions. Um, and again, like you could get into mechanics, right? Mm -hmm. But mechanics have diverged so much that like you can't really define um, JRPGs by specific mechanics anymore. But they are all, they are all sort of defined by the same like emotional, like narrative uh, elements that, that come from mm -hmm. way back in the day. So it was fun. It was it was a big challenge writing that, but yeah. I, I'm happy with how it came out. It's uh, it's funny that your like introduction to Final Fantasy was on the Game Boy uh, with my my first Final Fantasy game was more in name than anything else. It was Final Fantasy Adventure on the Game mm -hmm. Boy. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, not a Final Fantasy game. Not but, a Final uh, Fantasy game. Yeah. It, Kind in fact, of. a mana game. Yeah, yeah. But really good for being mm -hmm. on, you know, such a limited system. Yeah, yeah. Much, much better than Final Fantasy Adventure 2. 
yeah. uh, or at least more accessible and approachable for a, you know, seven-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, I was just thinking like, oh yeah, my first, my first video game that I owned was not a, uh, a role-playing game. I, the first game that I owned was Kirby's Dream Land 2 mm-hmm. on my bright yellow Game Boy Pocket. Yep in 1998 1999 mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. uh the second video game i owned was pokemon red yeah yeah and you know i was i was stuck from there yeah i um obviously have a big uh, portion of the book in the middle devoted to pokemon and in some ways you know a, a big crux at the center of the book is like final fantasy 7 sort of pushing japanese rpgs into the mainstream and, and mm-hmm. helping them become sort of a more cinematic genre that had like appeal outside of just like niche jrpg fans but i think you can look at pokemon as being just as influential in the rise of uh japanese rpgs as as final fantasy 7 for i think different reasons too like final fantasy 7 really changed how we thought about game narratives and mm-hmm. the present like narrative presentation in games pokemon on the other hand i think the mechanics is what yeah. made it so appealing right it, it has very little story like the idea of becoming the pokemon champion is appealing to like kids but the like the approachable mechanics and like the cute character designs and just creating like a world that was fun to explore introduced so many gamers to the idea of like oh hey it can be fun mm-hmm. to play a game that's just like maps and menus right yeah like it's a like the original pokemon games are slow like i have trouble going back to them now because they're very very slow uh but you know millions and millions and millions of little kids put up with that because the experience around it was so compelling and then that taught them how to appreciate different types of games and i think Mm -hmm. you can look at pokemon as as being you know right up there with final fantasy 7 as like these are the reasons why you know JRPGs took off in the West narratively and mechanically kind of around the same time um, in the, the late nineties like that. Yeah. I, I remember, I think coming home from, Oh, I can't, it was either a store whose name I can't remember, or it was uh electronics boutique with yeah. my shrink wrapped uh, Pokemon red and like doing the same thing, reading the mm-hmm. whole manual. Um, and one, one thing that has stuck out to me, you know, it's been what, uh, 23, 24 years since, since Pokemon Red came out 20, in the States. Uh, 98, I think. 98. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing that has stuck out to me uh, that like stuck out to me in that manual and that like continues to stick with me today was this little note somewhere in maybe it was even on the back of the box before I'd broken it open that just said like, you know, we recommend this game for people with, you know, at least a basic reading level. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. Like, you know, at that point I was in fifth or sixth grade, like yeah. I could read, but I was like, oh, okay. This is a, this is a reading game. Like mm-hmm. I'd already sort of known, like, you know, I'd started watching the cartoon, yeah. all that stuff. But uh it it was it was very it feels very akin to your experience of uh you know this ancient 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 game boy final fantasy mhm yeah it's like it was a new way to experience games right and like i you know for me i am a few years older than you 
but not like not a ton. I was in yeah. grade 12 when Pokemon came out. And, you know, my family and I, or I was between grade 11 and 12, I think. My family and I went down to Disneyland, but we decided to drive, you know, so from West Coast, British Columbia down to, to California. And you're in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, I remember driving through that area and it was like, I was 16. It was a, it was a tough <laughs> few days, right? Like, yep. what 16 year old enjoys being stuck in a car? Um, but like with their parents, but you know, what did I bring with me? I brought like seven fantasy novels, um, mm-hmm. which was ambitious even at the time, <laughs> right? Like I, you know, I could get through a wheel of time book, you know, pretty quick back then, but I couldn't get through seven in a, in right. a you know, week long car ride, but I brought a bunch of fantasy novels and then I brought my Game Boy with Pokemon. And so I remember sitting in the back of my, you know, back of my van playing Pokemon till the batteries ran out and then uh, yep. re- reading epic fantasy novels and and that kind of coming together of like i think you know they were coming together or kind of coming out at the right time as like this generation of kids who like you know i'm among the first generation of people who just grew up with video games right mm-hmm. like m- m- you know like my mom and dad introduced me to video games it wasn't something that i had to like convince them of right mm-hmm. like I-, I i was playing games on my you know dad's candy computer and stuff right, right? my mom like I'm pretty sure I got a Game Boy because my mom wanted to play Tetris and Star Trek, right? <laughs> like it was like it was my Game Boy, but I think we ended up buying as many games for her as as for me. And so like you know the timing of these Japanese RPGs, I don't think it's a coincidence that as like the kids who were born in like the early '80s and like mm-hmm. grew up only knowing a world with video games, they were starting to get into like late teenagehood and started to you know really be into stuff like these more complex these like morally sort of labyrinthine stories um Mm -hmm. with a lot of themes drawn from anime right i don't think it's a coincidence that final fantasy 7 took off when it did because it had this audience of of kids who who just like love video games video games were just part of life right they were a thing and they were looking for something that gaming could give them that was more than just you know platformers and and stuff um the guided experience of the like kind of linear japanese rpg experience was was akin to watching movies and and tv shows and um Mm -hmm. reading books and so you had these 17 18 year olds or you know 12 year olds and 20 year olds who were like yeah this is really cool i can play games but i can also kind of be immersed in this narrative like emotionally immersed in this narrative yeah in a new way and and so it was just a perfect perfect storm like great timing square and sony you know, like with his bucket load of cash, yep. like the amount of money that they invested in Final Fantasy VII when it came out was like irresponsible. Yeah. <laughs> like there was there was no guarantee that it was going to sell well in the mm-hmm. states, right? In the West, like the previous JRPGs sort of capped out in the West at six hundred thousand units, right? Like you know, which is okay, but <laughs> like there, you know, the m- amount of money I think it was like forty million dollars. For Final Fantasy VII, like in the mid-90s, right? Um, Just insane amounts of money. And like, there really was no guarantee that they were going to make it back. They were pretty confident about it. They knew it was going to sell really well in Japan. Mm -hmm. But like, without it breaking out in the West the way it did, it would have maybe kind of crashed and burned a little bit. But then, of course, it, it went meteoric and it sold millions and millions of copies. And, and not only that, but like then it opened the doors to like Xeno gears to sell a million copies. Like Xeno gears is a greatest hits game. And it's like a weird clunky, super long Japanese RPG about like Carl Jung and like, yeah. <laughs> and you know, like 
Gnosticism. And, like, you know, that game, like, in what world does a game about Gnosticism and stuff, you know, like, that's 70 hours long sell a million units but final fantasy 7 did that right and so you had all these games so not only did they make a bunch of money back on final fantasy 7 but like other games that like you know previously they might have expected to sell 150,000 copies worldwide like then went on to sell over a million and and so then they were kind of making bank off that and and that really propelled square forward and and set the tone for the playstation to become i mean what it is today right yeah which is still sort of a market leader yeah um and it kind of all ties back to that. Uh, I'm also thinking it was just like, you know, they couldn't have known, but it was also like the period of history in which these more narratively complex games yeah. were coming out yeah. was just like, you know, we're, we're talking about the end of the Clinton years, yeah. the start of the Bush years, 9-11, yeah. like, yeah. you know, everybody, every young person mm-hmm. grew up overnight during that yeah. time yeah absolutely and you know are asking for these more narratively complex and like uh more narratively ambiguous yeah. games in a lot of yeah. ways like i'm yeah. thinking about uh my my first exposure to final fantasy was one of my classmates in elementary school who for all of our creative writing assignments he wrote final fantasy fanfic mm-hmm. and then transitioned into uh also writing uh fanfic about and uh like building like elaborate connects models about uh metal gear solid Mm -hmm. and like you know that was like i i think the you know final fantasy 7 final fantasy 8 metal gear solid like set kind of the narrative tone for at least the next decade yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right that it kind of lined up with a lot of Western, like, politics and, and kind of cultural conversations, right? Like, I remember on September 11th, I had just graduated high school, and I ended up back there to meet some friends or something. I was going over there to meet some friends, and mm-hmm. and I, you know, I got to the school, and all the news was on the radio and stuff. But it's like, you know, like, you're consuming that as a, as a young adult. You don't know how to process that. I, you know nobody knew how to process that but then i was going home and that night you know i was plunking out in front of the tv and i was playing sweet it in three for a few hours right and it's like Mm -hmm. you know you are sort of like seeing like oh this world is sort of like you know ambiguous and like wrenched by war and wrenched by multiple factions with all sorts of ideals and goals and you're like wow this is kind of like what i'm seeing on the news right now this is what our world is and like it's not like the world wasn't like that before but all of a sudden your eyes are being kind of opened as a as a young adult to how much more complex and and challenging and and conflict filled the the world is and and these games are reflecting that and like i don't you know a game like metal gear solid i don't think i had the tools to like properly understand what it was what Mm -hmm. it was tackling at the time um and i keep meaning to go back to replay it actually because i think it from a modern perspective i think you know people like kojima were way ahead of their time right final mm-hmm. fantasy 7 was way ahead of its time it's like about a group of eco-terrorists who <laughs> you know like are taking on a capitalist like planet destroying yeah company right like i mean like it like it's literally like mirrors what's happening right now with like climate change and the fossil fuel industry and how 
capitalism will cling to that right For and sure, yeah we need people like to take on risks themselves to push forward that change and that's mm -hmm. what like in 1997 that's what final fantasy 7 was about right and then like you you know and then it, it digs into like individual trauma and how that impacts our abilities to kind of pursue the 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 big changes that we see the world needs and i don't know i when i was when 14 I, I couldn't understand that stuff i didn't have the experience yeah. to understand it but now i you know i replayed final fantasy 7 while, while writing this book and like it's all there the translation's terrible but mm -hmm. it's there the story's there the themes are there and i'm like how was this being written in 1997 and we haven't done anything mm -hmm. <laughs> like you know 25 years later how are these themes still so relevant more re relevant than they were right like j random japanese like game creators in their 30s were like yeah. ta you know aware of these things 25 years ago and and yet we're still you know we've made good progress in some ways but in not, some ways. not not enough right like yeah and they you know i don't know it's wild it's wild just to see like i think what that unfettered like creativity of like a a, a, a medium discovering itself kind of produced yeah way back, for sure uh, way back when and and uh that was a lot of fun to dig into in the book and look at how these these games were sort of like you know they weren't shackled by some of the same responsibilities fiscal responsibilities that they are now right mm -hmm. um and that was pretty pretty neat there's no blueprint yeah. uh no 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 financial blueprints no uh you know quarterly investors that they needed to worry about uh they could just sort of explore and push and and uh, some of those pioneers did some some pretty amazing work in that space it still holds up so well today better yeah. today than it did back then in some ways um so now that we've sort of vaguely made our way back to the book uh i did want to ask are there any uh are there any parts that just for whatever reason didn't make it into the book that uh you just really regret like oh if i could write a second edition i would definitely put this in oh yeah <laughs> so i pitched the book at about seventy thousand words mm -hmm. uh the final version that's coming out in a month or coming out has just come out or is about to come out depending on when this, this episode uh is released uh rings in at, at 111 thousand words so that's oh, like yeah <laughs> that it's it's a pretty big book it's bigger than uh than i expected it to be the first draft was like 125 thousand words so i you know i cut out a fair bit during revisions um mm -hmm. just to get it down to a more manageable size it's a better book for it uh but it you know pulls at my heartstrings and that was after like cutting a bunch of stuff out of the outline that i wanted oh, yeah. to put in there i could have written this book and it could have been two hundred thousand words and i still would have felt like i was leaving stuff out mm -hmm. but you know the purpose of the book wasn't to write about every single video game or japanese rpg right like that would would have been impossible so you know i found narrative through lines um mm -hmm. focused on mo like focused most heavily on the creators of final fantasy and uh dragon quest mm -hmm. but um but you know and then watching how those series created new uh new series or how you know new games reference back to those um but there were a bunch of chapters some that i you know that i wrote that i really loved that just um didn't kind of fit the narrative and the structure in the end mm -hmm. um you know i had a big chapter um that kind of just dug into like how do Japanese RPGs tell stories and so it was a big mm -hmm. you know like and I, I interviewed a bunch of really great writers to get their take on like you know how are these stories told why are they different than novels what can they do that's you know 
can't be done in any other medium. And it, you know, I, I wrote it. It was really great. The, the people I talked to were amazing and had insight that like, I felt like I learned a ton, mm-hmm. but in the end, you know, it felt like a, a, a side road, um, to the overall story. And so, you know, I wanted to do a big piece on the Sega Saturn. Like it was, it was called the lost generation. Mm-hmm. And it was all about Sega Saturn, Japanese RPGs. Sega Saturn is like an amazing console for Japanese RPGs in Japan. In Japan, yeah. But it has very, very little relevance on the success or the shape or the trajectory of the genre in the West uh, mm-hmm. because it, it flopped in the West. Uh, they killed, Sega killed it early and very few of the like, you know, prominent Japanese RPGs actually came out on the system. You got, you know, Panzer Dragoon Saga um, mm-hmm. was, was you know, one of the, the big prominent ones. Um, but, you know, we missed out on the best version of Grandia, for instance. It, it was released in uh, in Japan, but never made its way over here. And so, you know, in the end, that would have been a big chapter. I'd love to write it as a feature one day. Like, there's so much story there to tell. Mm-hmm. But when you're looking at the overall shape of a, of a book and a narrative and the story you're, you know, you're telling, just like writing a novel, if there's, you know, like a side plot that's like really compelling, it's it's great. But you got to pull it out. You save it for later and hopefully you find another home for it. And, for and sure. a lot of the book... You know, I wanted to tell an overall story over the course of the book, but I also wanted to make sure like each chapter kind of stood on its own. So if somebody, you know, wanted to dip back into the book and just read about their favorite period or their favorite game, that they were going to get an experience that like they start that chapter and it mm-hmm. continues and it, and it concludes, right? It has a full shape. Um, I'm a features writer uh, as a games journalist. So like I mm-hmm. write a lot of big, long features. And so I, I kept that in mind while writing this, you know, like the chapters, the book builds on itself and, and later chapters reference older chapters and stuff. But I wanted any single chapter in the book to be able to, somebody could pick it up, they could read it and they'd get that full experience. Um, and so, you know, I, a lot of these stories and ideas that I um, had to cut from the book, I hope I'll be able to find that ability to, you know, write them as a feature somewhere uh, in the future. And, and in fact, that's actually already happened with, um, with yeah. at least one of the ideas. Like I did a huge extensive series of interviews about uh, games localization in the the nineties mm-hmm. and how um, people like Richard Honeywood and Alex O. Smith came into an industry that didn't like a, a Japanese kind of like, uh, business culture that didn't really care about western localizations mm-hmm. and so like it was given no resources no there were no tools like you know they were using vhs tapes they would record portions of a game on vhs and then watch through that multiple times as they translated mm-hmm. um, into like flat documents like insanity that's and wild. so like i talked to richard and i talked to alex i talked to a few other people and got this amazing look at what games localization was like in the 90s and how somebody like richard honeywood said this has to be better. This can be better. And mm-hmm. here's how it's going to happen. And springboarding off Final Fantasy VII's success, because it was hugely successful in the West, but it also had a, like an abhorrent translation, right? Yeah. And that wasn't, you know, a reflection on the people who did the work. It was a reflection on the resources they had, the support they had, the tools they had. And Richard knew that that could be better. And so it's exploring, like, how did we get from Final Fantasy VII, which is, like, borderline unreadable sometimes at the beginning of the PlayStation, to Vagrant Mm -hmm. Story at the end of the PlayStation, which is, like, sublime. It's one of the, like, the best localizations of all time. And it happened in one console generation. Like, think about, like, the difference between a game at the beginning of the PlayStation 4's lifespan and a game at the end. Like, there's not that big of a gap. And that was one of the longest generations. Like mm-hmm. cycles right 
but like going from Final Fantasy VII to Vagrant Story in like five years, incredible. Yeah. And so that was a story that just it was too big and it just didn't fit the structure of the book. And I saw that as an opportunity to be like, okay, I, but I can tell this story and I can take this and mm -hmm. I can and I can put this out there and it can be a companion to the book. Um, and so that's uh, that's coming out hopefully in the next couple of weeks or has already come out um by the time the book is out it should uh, it should be available and so that'll be a great companion um fantastic you know and some you know those interviews helped inform chapters about vagrant story and and final fantasy 7 and, and you know mm -hmm. like those games and i was able to use that in the book so like you know it, it's there it's in the book but there was so much more it's such an incredible big story um, yeah and i'm really happy to have gotten to work on it it's one of my favorite things i've ever kind of worked on and and it was really rewarding to get to to you know use this book as an opportunity to explore all sorts of stories that's fantastic well uh i think we've already touched on a number of favorite things that you've had mm -hmm. in this book uh what i would like to touch on though is is there anything that you've been uh reading playing listening to watching otherwise consuming in the media landscape uh whether new or old uh, recently that you're just really excited to get other people on the train with you. Um, yeah, absolutely. One, I mean, one of the things that I've been reading recently and I'm, I'm just about to finish is a novel called tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by Gabriel seven. And it's, um, sort of a, it's a coming of age novel that, um, kind of falls back. It's like a tragic romantic comedy, I guess, mm -hmm. but it's more like, it's about like, love and friendship when like romance isn't the answer but it's also oh. like and i specifically bring it up because it's also about two creative people who meet and bond over video games as children and then grow up and make games together and mm. watching how their relationship like as creatives and business partners impacts their you know their friendship and their love for each other and they're like you know the way they grow up together and they their paths mm -hmm. come together and they diverge and there's heartbreak and there's sorrow and there's joy and it's all kind of wrapped around video games creating video games and the idea of like what games can bring to people's lives and and to culture that no other medium can do and i'm kind of i can be pretty like bearish on the idea of like <laughs> video game culture in like non fit or in, sorry in fiction stories mm -hmm. i find that it can be hit or miss often it just feels like window dressing like to kind of give mm -hmm. this oh like this look at this this is a nerdy book um but like this book is just it, it you couldn't take the video games out of it it's like gaming and games culture like creating games the industry the love of games fandom it's like it's part of everything. It's part of the character and plot and mm -hmm. theme and structure. And like, it, it couldn't exist otherwise. And um, the author, like very obviously has like a, a tremendously personal relationship with games. And I just, I've never read anything like it. It's impossible. Like for me to think of a book that's more in my wheelhouse than, mm -hmm. than this, right? Like it's, it's about friendship and, and love and video games. And that's just amazing. And, and it references that a bunch of like, awesome random great japanese rpgs as well which is just <laughs> like I, like and it's like you know be marketed as a mainstream novel and it's got chrono trigger and suikoden mm -hmm. references and i'm like this is how does this exist like this is incredible uh and so that's uh tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by gabriel zevin and it's it's incredible um and so that one uh, I, I just I, when i'm not reading about it 
or when I'm not reading it, I'm thinking about it. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about it right now. <laughs> Got about 30 pages left and, uh, and it's just, it's absolutely one of my favorite novels of the year. Um, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. And then I read a ton of books. I also want to shout out maybe a few of the books that I read uh, yeah. while re- like while writing fight magic items or before, because like it was influenced a lot by a lot of like games journalists that I, that I admire. Um, mm-hmm. Chris Kohler, he's not a games journalist anymore. He's kind of moved over into uh, to digital eclipse where he's putting out, he just put out uh, the Cowabunga collection, like oh, yeah, of, yeah. Uh, Ninja Turtle games. And so he was hev- like heavily involved in that. Uh, he used to be a games journalist and he's written a few books. Um, Power Up was one of his first. And mm. it was about like sort of the history of video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a number of years old now. So it like, um, you know, it's, it's not completely up to date, but uh, about five or six years ago, he did a, revised version with a new chapter and stuff and it's it's very good but more specifically his book on final fantasy 5 from boss fight books um really showed me how you can blend your personal experience uh and that emotional like play that you have as as a Mm -hmm. as a child and a teenager and as, as an adult and build it into like this idea of like a history and telling the stories of people and video games that game history books don't have to just be like you know recitals like Mm -hmm. textbook style recitals of like historical facts and data that they can be about people and so that was his book final fantasy 5 from um boss fight books um jason schreier's books press reset and blood sweat and pixels are also incredible he had a really like he kind of digs into um kind of themes through the book and then speaks to a lot of developers. And, and I really like that again, bringing people to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, the book that maybe inspired me the most through this process was Matt Alt's pure invention. Oh, and uh-huh. it's, um, it's kind of a, like along the similar lines as fight magic items, but it's more generally focused on how Japanese pop culture made its journey to the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of became this force around the same time that, Japanese RPGs did imagine that like what a coincidence Uh um and funny enough like I actually discovered this book like as we were kind of dealing with like an acceptance like I I came up with the idea for fight magic items Mm -hmm. and then um you know my agent had pitched it out and it was looking like it was going to land at running press and and then at the same time this book pure invention came out and I was like holy like holy smokes this is like (laughs) like this is like right in the wheelhouse of what I'm working on and then I I read it and it's uh it's just an incredible look at, at Japanese pop culture over like from the you know, post-war era mm-hmm. to the to the modern day. And um, Matt's actually his background is in games localization. And so he worked on a bunch of like the Japanese RPGs that I cover in the book. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't even really know that at the time. It was just sort of this confluence. So he has That's a really wonderful perfect. like um, opening to the book that looks at Final Fantasy VII specifically. And then he, he discusses Japanese RPGs and also like how they overlap with anime and dragon ball and sailor moon and, and mm-hmm. stuff. And it's just like, it's just a joy to read and his level of understanding and experience with the subject matter, his, like his depth of research uh, and the way again, like he reaches out and finds people and, and tells stories through the experiences people have. That was really like profoundly inspiring to me as I was working on, on my own book. Um, and so it's called pure invention, how Japan made the modern world. 
that I believe that's right. a subtitle. It'll be in it, the show notes. It had a subtitle change uh, between editions, um, so I can't uh, I can't remember where they landed um, after the version that I read. But uh, but it's incredible, uh, and it's about the same length as as my book. So you know, similar shapes, similar lengths, um, and I highly recommend that. Anytime somebody asks me about this book, I try to try to bring up Pure Invention because Matt's Fantastic. yeah, Matt's amazing, and his book is is incredible. So. Well, listeners, links to all of those things will be in the show notes so that uh, you don't have to memorize all of this, listen to it eight times and write it down uh, piece by piece as if you're localizing a game in the 90s. Although if you do want to listen to this episode eight or nine times in a row, you know, boost those download numbers, I won't argue. Mm-hmm. Give it a five-star rating on every Absolutely. platform. Yeah, every time you download it. Uh Aiden, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Before we get going, where can our listeners find you elsewhere? Yeah, I really, again, appreciate being on the show. It's it's such a thrill finally getting to, to chat with you like this. Uh, I'm all over the place online. Uh, the best places are, you can find me on Twitter at a dribble of ink, A-D-R-I-B-B-L-E-O-F-I-N-K, a dribble of ink, like my like my old blog. It's funny. I feel like at this point, more people know me from other work than my mm-hmm. blog. Um, so it's always funny to me to kind of reference back to, to a dribble of ink, but it was a huge part of uh, what, like my journey to, to get to this book. Uh, it's yeah. where I first started writing about games and I'm still on Twitter at a dribble of ink. Uh, I tweet a lot. Uh, you'll find a lot of content about Japanese RPGs and uh, the book coming up. You'll find a lot of content about old tube TVs because mm-hmm. that's a thing I'm into nowadays. <laughs> um, I also have a website, which you can find by Googling my name. But uh, if you're interested in the book, there's a one-stop shop for fight magic items that i created uh just at fightmagicitems.rocks so fight magic items rocks um nice so yeah fight magic items the title of the book dot r-o-c-k-s and that's a you know a big one-page website that has all the information you could need about the book it tells you about the book it has excerpts it has links to places where the book's been featured it has a preview so you can dip your toes into the the text if you want to you know you want more than the prelude that I just read um, and a whole bunch of stuff, pre-order links, everything you could possibly need all in one uh, fancy, easy to, uh, to read website. And that's Excellent. probably the best place. Uh, and can you tell our listeners very quickly about Astrolabe? Oh yeah. I also run a <laughs> newsletter. That's right. <laughs> uh, so I have a newsletter called Astrolabe. You can find it at astrolabe.adenmoher.com. Those will, that link will be in the show notes as well. Uh, it's a an issue-based newsletter about geek culture. Um, every issue has like a feature essay. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes that's written by me. Uh, sometimes I bring in like guest writers. Sometimes what I'll do, I uh, again, I like to talk to people. So a lot of like a lot of issues will have just like an interview style feature where I'll where I'll connect with somebody about a specific topic. So I connected with. Um, Patrick Klepek, who is a games writer, about mm-hmm. you know the challenges of being a young writer and growing up uh, visibly online. He was yeah. a teenager when he started writing for like OneUp.com, right? He's oh, an man. adult now. He's got kids, but he's been around like he's my age, but he's been around for like forever. And so mm-hmm. we talked about like how hard was it to be a young person growing up visibly the way that that you have. I talked to. Um, talked to the lead singer of Lesson Jake about mm-hmm. being a, being creative and sustaining creative projects during the pandemic, 
right? Like, how do you do that? Like, you know, they tour relentlessly, right? Like, mm -hmm. to get a band together to create an album, like, usually you get into a room and you jam together. How do you do that when you can't, right? And so we chatted about that. Like, what does it mean to be a creative person during the pandemic? And, uh, and so, you know, I reach out and I, I talk to lots of people and uh, we, I just released the 25th uh, issue of Astrolabe. So it's got those features. Every issue, I also delve into an old retro video game uh, mm -hmm. in Late to the Party is the name of that column. And so I'll often go on Twitter. I'll put out a poll. My audience will pick a game. I spend an hour with it, and then I write about it. You know, what is it good? Is it interesting? How does it hold up? Um, and that's always fun. And then I, you know, recommend a book each issue as well and have links to, you know, work that I've put out recently. So yeah. it's good. It's a whole grab bag of everything. It tries to be, you know, it's not just about video games. It's not just about books or science fiction. Uh, it's like geek pop culture across yeah, the spectrum. I highly recommend it. Um, and it's been really fun. My old, you know, like my background is in blogging. I used to have to like hop on the computer at a minute's notice to like break news and, and try to get out five posts a week. And, and that I, I couldn't do that anymore, you know, like with full time yeah. work and writing books and having kids and a family and, and all that. Uh, so the newsletter has really kind of worked out well it uh it, it gives me time to get those thoughts out and like really come come at people with with perspectives that i've been thinking a lot about and i, I really enjoy it so that's astrolabe astrolabe.aidenmoher.com it's free yeah it's free it's worth it at twice the price <laughs> i appreciate that <laughs> absolutely well Aiden, once again thank you so so much for coming on the show it's uh it's a dream come true since the first, uh, the very first season. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that we did this. I hope that, you know, for the next book, I'll be able to do it again. Because I absolutely uh, will. love chatting with you. I, I feel like I knew you when you were playing uh, Final Fantasy uh -huh. Adventure on your Game Boy. Like, that's how, that's how long we've known each other. So yeah. um, I'm hoping that uh, this isn't the, uh, the last time I'm uh, able to come in and I, I, as the owner of this podcast, mm -hmm. I can guarantee as long as this podcast is around that it will not be. Excellent. Love it. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBizniacs. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs>